Good morning, Sycamore View. I also want to welcome all the guests who are here. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream right now. Uh, I want to dive into Mark chapter 6 in just a few moments. But before we get there, I just want to honor this morning that the Bible talks about the priesthood of all believers. And what that means is that the Spirit of God has chosen to indwell every single child of God. And the Spirit of God does not choose favorites when it comes to God's children. So it's not that the Spirit of God prefers some children over other children or considers some children more favorites than others. The Spirit of God indwells every single child of God. And the beautiful thing about being the priesthood of all believers is that you don't have to go to a human being like me who's in a position of ministry to have access to God. You have access to God because God lives in you. We're in a process right now as a church of bringing on, asking God to raise up a few new elders for us. And this is something we've been praying over the last few weeks, and uh, I want to encourage you as a church to be praying that God will continue to place a call and a word upon a few men who are being asked to serve as elders, current and future elders of this church. And we, uh, if you read the Bible, the, the Bible talks about bishops and elders and overseers who who take pastoral leadership very seriously. So this matters in the life of our church, and I, I, I ask you to pray like it matters. We are also a church that has, that have chosen years ago to bring on full-time ministers to devote their life to the vision and the mission of this church. And we have, in my opinion, some of the best ministers that we could find. I'm thankful for the men and women who have served here. So today is Clergy Appreciation Day. Today is Pastor Appreciation Day. And I want to take just a moment to honor the six other full-time ministers who, are, who serve in this church. So if you're a guest, I want you to hang on just for a moment because I want to speak a word of affirmation over the character and giftedness of the ministers God has called to serve here. Anna Moser is not here today. She's on vacation. She's driving home today. But she is in her third year as our children's minister. She's carrying on a great legacy of children's ministers in the life of this church. And Anna comes here with a high level of a desire for spiritual formation, treating children's ministry not like a daycare, it's not like, hey, you're dropping your kids off so other people can go try to take God seriously, but thinking creatively and has a vision for how to inject the Spirit of God and the truth of God in kids from the moment they're born until they graduate out of her children's ministry. Uh, Anna is um, great vision, great patience, a hard worker, so grateful for her. Fawn is in her fifth year as a youth minister at this church, Fawn Taylor. She has a genuine heart for God. Things I love about Fawn, she's a great listener. She is approachable. I have seen Fawn in one-on-one and one-on-two situations with people, and her ability to listen to what God wants to speak to somebody is, needs to be acknowledged and, and thanked. I, I've, I've wrestled with how to acknowledge this about Fawn, so here's how I'm going to say it. One thing I love about her is she brings a, a charismatic wing to this church and to our leadership, helping us not to forget about, about the power and the mystery of the Holy Spirit. Because we are part of a faith tradition that is often taking God really seriously and Jesus really seriously, but we don't know what to do with the Spirit. And Fawn is one who continues to place the Spirit of God in front of us. Anna and Fawn are the two people on our staff who've been here the least amount of time. Yet I'm so grateful to be women on a staff and in a leadership when we're in meetings. They're the only women who are there, which I know can sometimes, that can be hard. Yet 
their, their willingness to be courageous and bold to speak into what God is doing in the life of this church. I celebrate them. Justin Archery is completing, he's celebrating his seventh year being on staff here with us. A creative genius, our director of communication. Uh, and one thing I acknowledge about Justin is most people on our staff, there was a call of God that found them and came upon them, maybe at a younger age when they were growing up, that the church affirmed and they knew that working with the church and for a church was in their future. And then we have a couple, one Justin, who if you would have asked him eight to nine years ago, do you see yourself working at a church for seven plus years? He may, he may not have been able to say yes. It's, I don't know what God's going to do with me, but I don't know if it'll be at a church, but he's here with us. And here's one thing I love about Justin. I asked my wife last night, we were on a date, and I was asking her about these ministers and sharing her with her what I was going to say. She said, here's one thing about Justin. When you ask me what sermon series you're in, I don't remember your sermons. I remember the graphics that Justin has created. <laughs> and, and here's one thing I, I love about Justin. When it comes to creating images and creating forms of communication for Justin, it is not just what does an image say. It's what does an image say about God. It's what is an image and a form of creation say about the gospel. He has the ability to create while also holding in the other hand the power and the truth of the gospel. How does this help point people to the greatness of Jesus? Jim Hinkle has been here 14 years. A great leader, efficient, a motivator. And two things I acknowledge and affirm about Jim. One, he is the best equipper I've ever been with in, in my 17 years of ministry. Knows how to identify talent, equip talent, and unleash talent like no one I've ever seen. And I would also point at Jim as the person in the life of this church who has helped this church develop a heart for the 901 more than anyone else. The bridges he has formed, some chasms he has helped break down, how God has used him to, for this church, how God has used him in this church to develop a heart for Memphis and beyond. Uh, I honor and thank him. This month, Kip is celebrating 15 years as the worship minister of our church. He's a gifted singer, yet being a worship minister is more than just being able to hit notes and read music. It's having a heart for God. I get a partner with Kip every single week as we plan and try to carefully and prayerfully think through worship services. And when Kip steps up here in front of you, it's not just a matter of trying to lead the songs right, but he's trying to lead this church to the throne room of God. And for 15 years, God has used him to do that. Kip has also modeled for us how God can take someone who has been through some deep forms of brokenness and put them back together and still use them no matter where they are for great kingdom significance. And Mark Taylor has now celebrated over 17 years in this church. And Mark, kind of like Justin, if you would have asked Mark 18 years ago, hey, will you ever work in a full-time role at a church? Mark would have probably looked you in the face and had laughed. Like, there's no way I'll ever work for a church. And now he's been here 17 years. When Mark came on board here, he, he tells a story. Like, he really didn't have a job description. He was hired to care for people and love people and basically to form his own job description. Mark is one of the most gifted people I've ever seen in making connections, loving people, caring for people. Mark is one person who may wake up with somewhat of a to-do list, but then find all these other things to do of great significance. We sometimes mess around with Mark when we go to restaurants to see how long it takes Mark, whoever is serving as our waiter, to make some kind of connection. And Mark can always do it. He could go to the North Pole and make some connection, right? 
Like, where'd you grow up? And somebody's like, I grew up in Fraser. What street in Fraser? Jones Road. Oh, did you know Miss Annie who lives in the third house on the left? Oh, and then before you know it, he's doing a, a, a wedding for a third cousin of whoever he just met because they aren't connected to a church and they need a minister to do it. Mark's that. Mark has helped us as a church not just develop relationships in our community, but to cultivate and maintain those relationships. On this staff with the full ministers, we have over 70 years, not just of ministry, but 70 years of ministry in this church. And I get to work with these people, serve with these people. As a minister who moved 8 and 13 hours away from family, there have been days and weeks where they have been family Together, we are not perfect. We're far from it. Every day we fail. We're trying to press into the God who is. And I'm asking you, if you are not already, to commit to praying over these six. Pray for their joy that the enemy will not rob it from them. Pray for their hope. Pray that they will live from the blessing of God and not for the blessing of God. Pray a 2 Corinthians 4, 1 anointing over them that since it is by God's mercies that we are engaged in this ministry, may we not lose heart. Pray for their families, because as a PK preacher kid, most of my life, I know the toll that the toll that full-time ministry can have on spouses and on children. Thank God for them. So I want to ask the five who are here today, the ministers, full-time ministers, will you stand where you are? I'm not asking you to do anything else, just stand where you are. And can we as a church show our appreciation for them? Amen. And if you want to bring banana pudding, just drop it to my office and I'll dispense that (laughs) to them during Clergy Appreciation Month. (laughs) Now, here is, hands down, the greatest transition I've ever made in the history of my preaching career. Because now I want to talk about a prophet who loved God so much, he died in Mark chapter 6. All right, so how's that for honoring ministers and now transitioning to John the Baptist? Open your Bibles to Mark 6, and I want to work us through this, make a few points that hopefully you can take home. Uh, We come in this series, in our our series on refocus in the book of Mark, to Mark chapter 6. And here's something about the Bible. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to speak with God, you went to a priest. If you wanted to hear from God, you went to a prophet. If you wanted to speak with God, if you wanted to engage in prayer, you went to a priest who had access to God. If you wanted to hear from God, you went to a prophet. Can we be honest? Most of us care more about speaking to God than hearing from God today. We want God to listen when we pray. Yet we don't take much time to hear what it is God may have to say. John the Baptist came as both, a priest and a prophet. Not a priest in a priestly role, though he played that role because God placed it on him. But he was a prophet who spoke to the power. So I want you to listen to this in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about this. And that this he heard about was that there was this man named Jesus who was healing diseases and driving out demons and displaying great forms of power. So King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. Some are saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, 
And then he had him bound and put in prison. And he did this because of Herodias, his brother's wife, whom he had married. Now, there are Jewish historians who were not Christians, who 2,000 years ago wrote this story in some of their history books, acknowledging this about Herod and Herodias. And one of the things was Herodias never even divorced her husband. She just like switched brothers on the spot. So Herodias, Herod takes her in. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, it wasn't Herod, Herodias nursed this grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. And this tells you something about how Herod may have been wrestling in his spirit. Verse 20, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So there are times where Herod would go, hey, get, bring John the Baptist out of prison and bring him in. And he would have conversations with him about faith in God and who knows what else. He liked to listen to him. Verse 21, finally the opportunity time came. Then on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now understand, this is the Bible's rated G, rated PG version of saying what went on in this room. Because this daughter is not leading them through a dance of YMCA or something like that, all right? There's no, there's no Fortnite flossing and, and orange justice going on in this, all right? She's leading them. She, it's, it's provocative. It's immoral what's going on. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what do I ask for? And some of us would be like trips to Disneyland or a cruise or half the kingdom. But her mom said the head of John the Baptist. And once the girl hurried in to the king with this request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So immediately he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter, and he presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. How's that for the story of the day? And for all you who are going to have to go home and have conversations with your five- and six-year-olds about this story, good luck, all right, have fun. It's, it's a great tragedy that happens. And here's the thing, man. John the Baptist dies. Because the one statement he makes to Herod that we read about is about marriage. It's that you can't do that in the kind of covenant God has set up. But, what, but let's not make John the Baptist out to be like this focused on the family, like gung-ho for marriage. Though I think he's honoring all those things. John the Baptist dies because he is challenging leaders to lead with character and integrity. And when there is a lack of it, he's calling it out in people. Because Herod wasn't just a king. Herod put upon himself king of the Jews. So if you're John the Baptist, who's a Jew, who's a part of the people of God, and now you have this guy claiming to be the king of the Jews, yet doesn't have character and integrity or righteousness, then something needs to be said about it. Years ago in the 19th century, there was a great preacher. A preacher who traveled all around the Northeast, a preacher in a time without social media, because this is in the early 1800s, 
developed this huge platform for the gospel of Jesus, traveled all over the place, and got to speak in the House of Representatives multiple times. And it wasn't a male preacher. It was one of the best preachers in the 19th century, a female named Harriet Livermore, was known for her powerful proclamation of the truth of the gospel. In 1827... The first time she, she spoke in the House of Representatives, she stood up in front of a place of all men, including President John Quincy Adams. And she preached an hour sermon on one verse. So no microphone, no recording. Some of it she planned. Some of it was the Spirit moving in her. She challenged them with 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, which says, He that rules over men must be just. And he that rules must rule in the fear of God. And she went on for an hour. And President John Quincy Adams hated it. Didn't like the sermon. Didn't like her message. Because she was challenging people in power to take upon themselves a high calling of character and integrity. And can we be honest today? that these seem to be traits that are missing in so much of our culture. From the highest office in the United States, through politics, and not just politics, but even church leaders, business leaders. I have a friend who says, if the price is right, your integrity is just for sale. And, and don't we, doesn't the next generation deserve better, Right? Like for the people of God to acknowledge that for us, for people who come into the church and take the bread and the cup every week, we've got to be driven by more than party lines and certain positions because it seems like today the way a lot of us operate are we have our positions or our policies and if character and integrity comes with it, then great. And if not, it's all right. When there's got to be a higher calling of character, integrity, righteousness. Because what do you say? When the kids of the day sometimes come to us as parents or people in position and say, why does it seem like when I see these politicians in commercials, why are they so mean? Why does it seem like there's so many leaders who break every point in the bully policies that hang in every school throughout Shelby County? And we've got to raise the bar. As the church, there's nothing wrong with us being people who both pray for and demand and expect a high calling of character and integrity. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to minimize Mark 6 in the text to highlight this void in our culture. I want to take a void in our culture and place it in Mark 6 to help us realize that a prophet lost his life because he was calling somebody to a high calling of character and integrity and righteousness. And this has happened in the church many times where people, there have been some churches that have said, hey, if you can run a good business, then you should be an elder in a church with no calling of character on someone's life, which is so vital. So John the Baptist dies. And here's what I want you to see. Three things. Here's Jesus' response to this. John the Baptist is beheaded. There's persecution. And if you're Jesus, in his humanness, Jesus is probably thinking, what just happened to John the Baptist will soon happen to me. And here's how Jesus responds to it. 
The first thing Jesus does is he disengages from a crowd. So in Mark 6, 30, 32, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. The first thing Jesus does is he disengages. I want this to be a word for someone in this room today who is suffering from some form of tragedy, brokenness, or grief in your life. Here are three things you can learn from Jesus' response to tragedy and brokenness. And either you need these now or there will come a day in your life that you will need these. The first is you disengage and make being with God a priority. The next thing that happens, and I hate to even just barely touch on this story because it's the only miracle told in the public ministry of Jesus in all four Gospels. The next thing Jesus does is he feeds over 5,000 people from a place of brokenness in his own life. Some of the best ministry in the life of Jesus came in brokenness and grief, and some of the best ministry in your life can come from brokenness and grief. When my sister died in 2010, we were home for the holidays a few months later, and I remember Casey was in the kitchen with my mom, and my wife asked my mom and said, Beverly, are you afraid at all that in your grief that it will make you bitter? And my mom had to sit with that before she could respond. Because doesn't this often happen in life? When tragedy hits, there are forms of persecution, brokenness, grief, that if we are not making God a priority, then it can make us bitter. It can make our hearts hard. For Jesus, in a place of brokenness, was this great outflowing of generosity and compassion that he saw a need, and he didn't minimize the need or say, I'm too broken to deal with this. But he responded with great generosity and compassion. And then the third thing Jesus does, after sending his disciples out on a boat, is he walks on the storms. He walks on the waves And I've preached this multiple times in the life of the church. I love that it's not until Jesus gets into the boat that the storm ceases. That he wanted them to know that, hey, I am one who is coming with the power not just to calm the storm, but to walk over whatever the storm in your life is. Now, if you're the church receiving this letter from Mark in the book of Mark, if you're the church living in the mid-60s, where you got Emperor Nero and these other emperors and people of power where there's persecution breaking out on the church. You're hearing this story, and you're hearing about John the Baptist, and you're probably thinking, what has happened to John the Baptist? Could happen to me or someone in this church? For many of them, it's what happened to John the Baptist has already happened to people I love in the church. And for them, the way they see Mark 6 play out is like this that what happened to John the Baptist could happen to any of us. There's tragedy that happens in life, but how do we respond? And for the church it was. We've got to make sure we are, first and foremost, we know how to disengage and to make God a priority. He's the only source of strength we have. Anything else is temporary healing and temporary um, dealing with peace, but, but God's the only one who can provide permanent peace for us. Secondly, it's that in our brokenness, Don't be afraid to ask, God, what do you want from me in my brokenness? How do you want to use me? What do you want? Where does compassion need to be dispensed? Who is in need? And thirdly, to know that whatever storm you go through in your life, we serve one who has already walked over it. He has conquered it. And we press into him with everything we have.
So as our elders and prayer leaders go throughout the room right now to receive people for prayer, can you go to that last slide that just had the three points on it, if you'll go back to that one? I just want you to look, and I want you to think. Those of you who are maybe in a place right now of tragedy, of brokenness, or grief in your life, which one of these comes the hardest to you right now in your life, and which one do you think God may be calling you to? Are you making God a priority, not just an afterthought? How does God want to use you in the place where you are right now, and where does compassion need to be dispensed? And how do we need to press into the one who is the Lord over the storms? And let's reflect on that, and as we sing this song, let's declare that over one another. If there's a need in your life, feel free to find one of these people in the room. If this is a day where you feel the call of God on you to be baptized into Christ and confess Jesus is the Lord of your life, we invite you to come to the front. We would love to, to take you and talk with you and see what God will do. Let's stand together and let's sing.